I hate men. I loathe them. When one of them so much as touches me, I want to sink my teeth into his hand and bite it off. <laughs> In fact, I did that once. Do you care to hear about it? Tell me anything you remember. We were dancing. He kept asking me to marry him, panting in my ear. I suddenly pretended I was going to kiss him. Sank my teeth into his mustache. Bit it clear off. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week, we finished out the 1945 nominees with Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound, starring Ingrid Bergman and Gregory Peck. And yet, the combination of all of those things does not quite add up to the sum of its parts. Oh, I'm so glad you think so. Because I also had this feeling of like, why isn't this working? The closest thing I can compare it to is the one Hayao Miyazaki movie I don't like all that much, which is Howl's Moving Castle. Haven't seen it, but I trust you. (laughs) It's not that it's a terrible movie. It's that I just repeatedly find myself going, oh, it's been 10 minutes. Like, what happened for the last 10 minutes? I don't know why, but my mind just won't receive the images that are coming toward me. This movie, I think I have a little bit of a clearer handle on why, which is that this movie attempts to hang its dramatic hat on the therapeutic process in a very strange way. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And manages to be wildly misogynist while doing it, and not in the usual Freudian way. No, although I do like that this is a movie about the costs and benefits of being so hot, no man believes you won't sleep with them. Because on the one hand, every man in this movie does hit on her. On the other hand, that's how she figures out nine-tenths of the things she figures out in this movie, is that some hot dude is like, well, like, obviously I'm hot, you're hot. Or just some random dude on the street will believe anything rather than believe she's not interested in them. So we're going to have to set a metric for hot here, because... Young Gregory Peck is so beautiful as to be fully fucking distracting. Mm-hmm. So were there other hot men in this movie? <laughs> because, like, I started looking at Ingrid Bergman and being like, oh, there are things wrong with her face. <laughs> in a way that I had never done before. <laughs> because Gregory Peck was there. <laughs> and he's not that hot when he gets older. Like, he's he's a very handsome man. Do not get me wrong. But he's like Adonis or something in this film. (laughs) I think the only person that's even halfway good looking, really, the only guy that's halfway good looking is the house detective at the hotel. Yeah, okay, yeah. He has kind of like a Joseph Cotton-ish energy. Yeah, but like mostly it's guys in their late 50s going like, why does blonde Ingrid Bergman with the hottest glasses on earth not want to bang me? It's weird. She must be frigid. And it's like... (laughs) Or maybe you're like 60 and she's Ingrid Bergman. Like, that's also a possibility here. And also you're a creep who keeps hitting on her and basically telling her that she will never be as good of a psychiatrist as you are because she's a woman. Right. So the plot here is both very short 
in terms of what we need to set up about this being a thriller, which is Ingrid Bergman plays a doctor named Constance Peterson, here too after referred to as Ingrid Bergman, <laughs> yes, <laughs> who works at a mental hospital in Vermont. A new guy comes in to take over the place, and it's Gregory Peck. And so she is immediately like, let's make out. But then it turns out that Gregory Peck is not the guy he presents himself as. Is not the Gregory Peck you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, he's this other guy and he has amnesia and does not know why he has taken over this other guy's identity. Ingrid Bergman believes that is because he is suffering from a guilt complex and blames himself for the death of this other guy that he is not actually responsible for. Everyone else goes, this guy's crazy. He murdered that guy and has taken over his identity. So he goes on the run. Ingrid Bergman follows him to New York and then proceeds to incredibly slowly work through the therapeutic process to try and get him to relieve himself of his guilt. Which eventually works, and then there's like one last twist before it turns out that actually the terrible dude at the mental hospital that's been hitting on Ingrid Bergman for the entire movie is the guy that did the big murder. Which I don't quite understand why or how that was supposed to work, but that's okay, because at the end Ingrid Bergman gets to have a big monologue telling him off, and then she and Gregory Peck go off and get married. And the most Hitchcock shot in the whole movie happens, and I felt like I had been rewarded for sitting through this muddle of a film. <laughs> this movie is extremely Hitchcock at the beginning, extremely Hitchcock at the end, and then is just a boring procedural for like an hour and 20 to 30 minutes in the middle there, with exactly one exception, which is the shot that they make a big deal out of in the poster with the straight razor. At the dude's house. Like, that's the only other really Hitchcock-y part of the movie. And it doesn't really come to anything. It just looks cool. <laughs> when her boss, I guess, who killed the guy, he has a gun on her for her whole monologue. And all you can see is basically his hand and the gun and then her beyond. Yeah. She leaves the room after the monologue and then the gun turns around and is pointed at the camera, and then there's the gunshot, and it goes instantly to black. It's pretty cool. Not gonna lie. It's a good shot. That's a good shot. There's this, like, scene introducing Ingrid Bergman, where there is an insanely hot, insane brunette woman at the mental hospital that is coming in to do a session with Ingrid Bergman. And it's just so Hitchcock likes what he likes. Yes. The whole monologue from this woman, Ingrid Bergman's whole look, that is super duper Hitchcock. And then it just is just kind of boring for a long time after that. Yeah, and it's frustrating because the parts that are quite slow and boring are with her, I guess, professor, her mentor that they go to visit in Rochester who is absolutely the stereotype of... He's basically playing a caricature of Freud, right? Yeah. And there's so much potential there, and yet it's not interesting. Because <laughs> the guy's giving a hell of a performance, but everything he says, I could not repeat a single line that he says, except for women make the best patients until they fall in love. Yeah, the best therapists until they fall in love, which is slightly less shitty. And also, weirdly slightly a shittier thing to say. But it's pointed at her. Yeah. <laughs> when he's introduced, 
you're like, oh, this guy's going to be interesting because it is the first dude to appear on screen that doesn't want a banger. And then like five minutes in, it's like, oh, God, he wants to banger too. Yep. It's... <laughs> There's also a weird thing around Ingrid Bergman's sexuality in this film. Because the first thing that we understand about her after the specifically man-hating patient hot brunette who talks about how she hates men and wants to bite their hands off and apparently did once. Yeah. Which we don't really dig into that. That seems like it might be a more interesting movie. Is that she has no experience, quote unquote. That is not defined in any way. (laughs) And then the minute that Gregory Peck walks in, she's making out with him. So I don't know if it's that she has basically led all of the men in her life to believe that she has no experience Or that Gregory Peck just looks like that, and so anyone would do that. (laughs) Yeah, it is weird because I think that my explanation is all of these dudes at the hospital are like, she has no experience in the world because she won't sleep with me. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt, was that she was letting (laughs) them believe that so that they would leave her alone, even though it was not working. But I don't think that read quite works with this movie i don't think that's the intended read i think the intended read is that they are in fact right she is closed off and doesn't understand love and like gregory peck opens her up to that and it's i okay whatever like i think that's supposed to be the like they both change each other thing because she's you know psychoanalyzing him but he's also opening her up to the world of emotionality and it that sucks like it's boring honestly both parts of that suck and are boring (laughs) well especially because as he becomes more open and they dig deeper back into his past and start to try to figure out who it is that he is the meaner he becomes to her right he says some really shitty things to her that are just straight up abusive And I get that he's having, is in the midst of a psychological break. Like, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that he needs to say really nasty, sexist things to her, which this movie is very, very sexist and very overtly. You know, there are a lot of criticisms of Hitchcock for being sexist generally, but usually it's in representation of the women in the film, not people just saying shitty things to the lead woman in the film over and over again. It's strange because this movie has a very good understanding of how defense mechanisms work in terms of the way people lash out emotionally in therapy, but that's why you don't bang your patients. Like, that's specifically why. Even if they look like Gregory Peck. Yeah. Maybe especially. (laughs) Emotional transference is this entire movie, and that's why you don't make out with them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that Ingrid Bergman is giving an excellent performance that is utterly thankless, because again, all of this stuff happens to her. People are very mean, sexist, sexually harassing, demeaning, snotty, like you name it, and people are in some way bad to her. And she takes all of it in stride, and that is, uh, it's kind of masterful, because She manages to do it in a way that feels natural, where I'm going, I can't fucking believe you just said that to her. But it shouldn't have to be that she is playing someone who takes being abused constantly in stride. 
There's like a 20 minute stretch of the movie, right where she and Gregory Peck spend the night together, but definitely don't have sex because it's 1945. So they don't have sex. Not allowed. He runs off. And there's this 20 minute stretch after that where she kind of schemes to figure out where he is and get back to him so she can help him. And that's the only stretch of the movie where I think her role isn't thankless because it's the only place where taking that in stride makes her an active participant in anything where she sort of bends the men around her to get what she wants instead of just going, yeah, I know you think I'm frigid. I've got to go see another patient now, which is like 90% of this movie. Right, right. Because other than that, the only time she's an active participant in the plot is when she's interpreting his dreams, which all feels so utterly fucking random. And she doesn't even get to do the vast majority of the interpretation because, of course, her mentor is smarter and better than she is. Because he's a man who wants to sleep with her. (laughs) So he does the vast majority of it. Right. She has that very last scene where she reinterprets the dream to prove the guilt of the hospital administrator instead of Gregory Peck. Which is the most, just don't confess to the crime and you're good, my man. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that the quite literally... Created by Salvador Dali dream sequence is admissible in court. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the giant eyes in his dream represent the I-22 club in New York. It couldn't be clearer. Please convict. Is just like, that's nothing. No, it's the 21 club because he's playing blackjack. Right. But the person has blank cards. (laughs) But you do get an actually designed by Salvador Dali dream sequence in this movie, and that's something. The dream sequence slaps. The interpretation of the dream sequence is like, I actually want this silent or with more discordant theremin music. Which, by the way, discordant theremin music is back, everybody. Hope you liked it from Long Weekend. Apparently, until, I guess, Star Trek, discordant theremin music doesn't mean sci-fi it means creepy psychological break moment yeah i do think that this is a better movie than lost weekend oh yeah but i think it suffers from the same problem of this is just not how you dramatize the therapeutic process it just isn't no don't do it this way it's bad one it isn't really how therapy works because it's mostly just telling you how therapy works and then having people go well we did that let's go ski (laughs) (laughs) oh man the skiing scene too i mean this is a thing that you just have to take in stride with hitchcock right is that he's gonna do this green screen shit yeah and it's gonna look hokey And I can't imagine it didn't look hokey then. It looks hokey. It really does feel like, well, that's where the budget broke down. They just felt like they had to do this scene. I don't know why. Ingrid Bergman is acting the hell out of it. They have set up that if you put a person back in the trauma that made them have a psychotic break, they're likely to have the same break, and that's how you have a breakthrough. But if he did, in fact, snap and murder this dude, he's going to snap and murder again, and therefore murder Ingrid Bergman is what they've set up. 
up until now, she has been super duper behind him, refuses to believe he could have done this, is just supportive to the point where everybody around her is like, you're being absurd and emotional. Please sleep with me instead. It, what was that? No, no, nothing. Anyway, you're being absurd and emotional. <laughs> but when they get to this make or break moment, she is very clearly having this self-preservation instinct fight against like, no, no, I got to go through with this. This is like what good therapy is. And also this is what you got to do to sleep with Gregory Peck. So we're doing it. <laughs> Which I can understand. She is doing some great face acting against just absolutely bonkers bad blue screen of trees in the snow going past them as they both go like, yes, we're bending our knees. These are skiing motions. This is how skiing works. And Gregory Peck is making a bunch of trout face to drop jaw. Oh, I'm freaking out faces that are not good acting. <laughs> no. This is where he has his breakthrough and goes like, I didn't murder him. I accidentally murdered my little brother. And you're like, oh, okay. Right, when I was like six. Right. Not even recently. Yeah. Clearly somebody did some research on therapy and psychoanalysis in making this, but it is all very much like a layman read a couple of books. Understanding of therapy and psychoanalysis, which doesn't help the fact that that's fully two thirds of the movie is just people explaining psychoanalysis to you. And you're like, I, um, almost I kind of I, is that a thing? I wondered aloud a lot in this movie if this was a problem of psychological science has come so much further since 1945, or if it was a problem of the people who wrote this script had absolutely no clue what they were talking about and had gone to psychoanalysis <laughs> and then just extrapolated from there. Yeah. Because it definitely has that feeling of, yeah, I know what your job is like because I've experienced it from the perspective of, of a person who uses the service. So I know what I'm doing here. <laughs> It's kind of a mess. I mean, here's the thing. I tend to actually like movies that dramatize the psychotherapeutic process when they are period dramas because it highlights how fucked up the whole process used to be. Mm -hmm. Like, let's put women in ice cold and then super hot baths because they're hysterical and have wandering wombs or whatever. The movie A Dangerous Method I really like that's about Freud and Jung and their sort of battles over what counts <laughs> as far as psychoanalysis is concerned. And I think that those are interesting because you don't get into this mire of, oh, well, nothing works like that anymore. That's ridiculous. Because that's the point, is that nothing works like that anymore. I'm sure 25 years from now, if we watch a movie that's about psychotherapy that was made today, we will look at it and go, oh my god, can you believe how barbaric we were? <laughs> but this, I don't even know if it was correct for contemporary 1945 psychotherapy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't either. I think this movie actually has a very progressive for 1945 view of therapy. This movie seems really dedicated to saying, hey, therapy and psychoanalysis are really useful, real things and should not be stigmatized and really help people. 
but also the process of it in this movie is I feel like the way that we do this now is that we sort of hand wave everything except for the breakthrough, right? Right. And concentrate intensely on the breakthrough moment. And a very strange thing about this movie is the breakthrough feels like it comes out of nowhere, which is accurate to therapy, but dramatically bizarre. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That he just suddenly goes like, I killed my little brother. And you're like, you did? What the fuck are you talking about? Why does skiing make that happen for you? And then they show this scene of a little boy sitting on the end of a concrete banister for steps. And then you have the perspective of the little boy behind him who slides down, hits him, and then he flies off and lands on these spiked iron gates. It's kind of, it's kind of gruesome. Yeah, it's dark. Even though there's no gore, it's pretty gruesome. Yeah. But yeah, I never quite understood why the skiing, other than I guess the mechanism physically of going downhill, created that because previously what triggered his anxiety and his irritability was seeing stripes of any kind on white. And it wasn't snowing when it happened. There's no connection to the whiteness of things. Uh, Though it does get Ingrid Bergman to take him skiing. Right. All of the psychoanalysis in terms of the specifics they drop in of like, in your brain, this means this, are required for the plot, but all feel like 1960s Batman Riddler plots. Like, of course, one, two, three, Seventh Avenue, <laughs> where you're just like that. That's nothing. The explanation of like, of course, black lines on white makes you think of skiing. Yeah, I guess. Sure. Let's get to the skiing sequence. But then skiing has nothing to do with it. Yeah. Skiing triggers the memory, but is nothing to do with the actual. It's like somehow his brain knew that he needed the memory triggered by skiing. Right, because the actual traumatic part, I guess, was witnessing the doctor get shot. But the, like, again, I'm unclear of the specifics of how the murder actually went down, because everything that Ingrid Bergman says in that last scene kind of makes sense on its own. But then you think back to act one and you're like, wait, what did the actual murderer think was going to happen? Like, what was his plan when this guy showed up pretending to be the other? Did he plan for that? Was that what he wanted to happen? And if so, how did he plan for that? And if not, then what was his plan when they found this body? It doesn't make any sense. The whole thing falls apart the minute that you pick any one thread. Yeah. And that, I think, is the thing that feels particularly un-Hitchcock-y, right? Like, usually whatever the mystery is in Hitchcock does get revealed all at once. Yeah. But even if it sounds ludicrous, it at least tracks. Yeah. Like, okay, well, if that happened, then I guess this also would happen and those two things would be connected. Whereas with this, yeah, like you're saying, none of the dominoes would actually hit the other dominoes. It's just a strange end. And I think one of the reasons it's so unsatisfying is... It is supposed to be this moment of triumph for Ingrid Bergman. It feels like emotionally it's the release for this entire movie of her just having to sit there and take guys being sexist and very transparently not knowing what to do with a hot woman that doesn't like them very much. 
And instead, you spend the entire scene going, he did what now? Now, which club in New York? Why would you now? Why would you pull the gun on her? Why is any of this happening? (laughs) Visually, it's interesting. Like you say, the Hitchcockian, like there are two frames of color in this movie and they're the fade to black is actually a red flash to black, which fucking rules. Yeah. But the scene itself, the dramatic reveal of the thriller plot is confusing and not confusing in a fridge logic way. Confusing in a, no, right here in the moment, I need you to diagram this out for me because I don't (laughs) understand what the hell you're saying. It doesn't make any fucking sense. I mean, is it entertaining? Absolutely. Yeah. But honestly, the gun being our visual guide for this scene takes away from paying attention to the nonsense of it. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then I had to go back to listen to what was being said. And I went, oh, yeah, no, I shouldn't have done that at all. (laughs) I just ruined the scene for myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm ready to rate this. Yeah, I am too. Um... I think it's a five, and I think it's our first messy five in a long time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I almost want to bump it up to a six, but I think you're right. Like, I had this momentary flash of, should this be a six because of the dolly sequences? Because of, of, like, these weird flashes of Hitchcock being the director of this movie. Yeah. But, yeah, I think five is fair. Like, I think that there's brilliant stuff in here, and then there's also just such boring stretches of time. I don't think I could tell you anything that happens in between where they're reunited in New York and where they get to the mentor in Rochester. There's, like, a part where he goes to a ticket counter for some fucking reason. Like, it's like that. Like, it's where you're just like, I think that that's where this... For long stretches of this movie. So yeah, I think five is fair. And I think, like, don't watch this movie. Rebecca is still the Hitchcock to beat. And I think it may be forever. Like, the Academy kind of starts ignoring Hitchcock soon, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of that is that Hitchcock becomes his own genre unto himself. Yeah. And we know how the Academy feels about genre movies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which is, they don't like them. This movie, it is an interesting failure, but it fails when it isn't interesting, so it's not worth watching. Because <laughs> the interesting parts are the successes. The dream sequence is definitely really interesting. It was apparently mostly cut out that whatever they had was much longer, and I would sort of like to just see that. <laughs> the 20-minute version of the dream sequence instead of this movie. There are little flashes of brilliance, like you said, but they're not enough to justify watching this movie that isn't even really that long. It's sub two hours, but it feels, I mean, it feels like it's runtime. It does not breeze by, but it also doesn't really feel like, oh God, this is pulling teeth. It goes by and then you're done. Again, that's the thing I was trying to say about Howl's Moving Castle is it is less that this movie is like unpleasant to watch And more that you just kind of find yourself going like, oh, the movie happened while I wasn't paying attention. What was it again? And trying to snap back in on it. I got frequently lost, but I never got lost in the film. Yeah. It's never like, oh, I'm just taken over by how captivating and engaging this is. Because it's just not. Yeah. 
so it's time now to do who the Academy should have picked, right? This is the end of 45. It is the end of 45. Um, I, I'm going to say Anchors Away. <laughs> I am also going to say Anchors Away, which is bonkers. Like, I see how Way the Academy... Way more for you. Because <laughs> you hate the Navy. <laughs> I do hate the Navy. I did like that movie, but I didn't love it. Like, I think we gave it like a six or a seven or something. Maybe we bumped it up to an eight just because of the parts of that movie that are great are great and are extended and are just nonsense. I again, my entire review of that movie is there is no reason for this movie to go this hard. Like, I do not understand. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, plot wise, that movie was ridiculous, but it also didn't focus on the plot very much. The plot was there to hang all of these great song and dance and cartoon sequences on. And that was it. And you know what? Fine. Yeah, but the competition is like, I see how the Academy got to Lost Weekend, because Bells of St. Mary's is worse than going my way the longer I sit with it. Like, it has all of the classic sequel problems. We're going to do more of everything, and so all of it matters less. Yeah. And then Spellbound is mediocre Hitchcock. Mildred Pierce is not even the best vaguely racist Joan Crawford movie. It's just bad. Lost Weekend is bad, too, but it's a bad message movie. And it's at least trying to say something about alcoholism that I guess I agree with. What, the alcoholism is bad? Yeah. (laughs) Real deep stuff there. (laughs) I I mean... No, no, you're right. You're right. I generally agree with its perspective on alcoholism being not great for you or your loved ones. It is wild that I do think Spellbound is the second best movie of this year, and we just gave it a five. 45 is not a great year. Let's be real. It's not the best. I guess everybody, you know, had come home from the war and they were interested in things other than going to the movies. Yeah. Which, fair. So, speaking of... of Best years? Of good or bad years, yeah. uh, Next week we are starting 1946 with... The best years of our lives, starring Myrna Loy and Frederick March, who I had forgotten existed. It has been so long since they've been in a movie for us. It is also completely bonkers that you are correct, and that is what we're- wait, wait, sorry, what is going on with Henry V? Oh, did I- hold on. Is that one of the ones that is- It's from 44. What the fuck? Alright, so I guess I did not look at the year on that one. All right, so next year, next week, actually. That was not me trying to go like, Susan, What your spreadsheet is wrong. No, you're totally right. No, what I'm saying is that's nuts because everything else from this list is December of 46 and the release date is 44 for that. I mean, I assume it must be an international release schedule thing, but that's nuts. That it comes out in 44 and then must have gotten wide released in 46 and then gotten nominated for an Oscar? That's crazy. Yeah, or maybe something is wrong with the Wikipedia article. Also possible. I don't know, we'll look into it and then either be watching Henry V or The Best Years of Our Lives. So tune in next week week to find out which one. (laughs) Yep. Also, hilarious to me. That the best years of our lives is longer than Henry V. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, yeah. By a significant margin. Henry V isn't even a year long. <laughs> great point. Great, great point. <laughs> yeah, until then. This was a shit show. <laughs> yeah. And so was this year. Yeah, this was kind of a fitting capstone to 45. <laughs> <sighs> Bye, everybody. Goodbye. It seemed to be a gambling house. But there weren't any walls, just a lot of curtains with eyes painted on them. A man was walking around with a large pair of scissors cutting all the drapes in half. <laughs> <laughs>